Good evening and welcome to the show. Um, I am finally back after I took a few weeks off to kind of think about where I wanted to go with this podcast, if I even wanted to come back with it, because it is something that I have wanted to do for a while and I decided that I was not going to give up on it. I was just going to switch some things around. So welcome to With a Side of Crime with more thought put into it than I normally or than I used to put into it. Anyways, I will not be giving you recipes via podcast from now on. I'll most likely just be posting it via Instagram. I will just eat while I tell a story and tonight I'll be eating vegetarian chili. That's right. I gave up meat and it's really not as bad as you would think. Vegetarian chili and it's actually delicious. So, let's just jump right into our case this week. Just so you know, in case you hear any sounds, I do have the foster dog in here with me. She's in her kennel, and she does get easily bored, and she also has breathing issues. So if you hear some snorts, it's her. She's looking at me, and yes, I'm talking about you, ma'am. Anyways... When professionals in the health care field take the Hippocratic Oath, they make a promise to take care of others. Not everyone follows that oath. Today, you'll hear about some of those people. More likely, one, Janine Jones. From the start of 1981 to March of 1982, Janine worked in the pediatric ICU at Bexar County Hospital in San Antonio, Texas. During this time, multiple children died in the ICU, most of which were under Janine's care. The amount of deaths happening during her shift garnished widespread attention and led co-workers to start calling Janine's shift the death shift. It was found that children were 10 times more likely to die from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m., which was her shift, than at any other time during the day. Children who were at one point stable suddenly stopped breathing and coded. Some children had seizures, and some began to bleed profusely, their blood unable to clot. The more often this happened, the less and less it seemed that this could be a coincidence. Suspicion around Janine was so strong that the hospital made the decision to remove her. Rumors had been swirling for weeks now, and Pat Belko, who was the head nurse in the ICU, thought that the rumors were just that, and she didn't believe them at first. She thought the nurses were vicious for saying things about their fellow co-worker. She didn't take accusations that severe lightly. So one night, Susanna Maldano studied the census book in the ICU and found out how many children died during sudden emergencies on Janine's shift. Susanna went to the pediatric ICU census book. The head nurse went to the pediatric ICU census book. Susanna had done her homework extensively. The numbers she had come up with in regards to children who were seemingly progressing from their sickly state who had suddenly died were correct. Pat Belko met up with the director of the ICU and told him the information that she had learned. They decided that they would investigate. The hospital began to undergo some private searches to find out if one of their very own vocational nurses was indeed killing children. During this investigation, children continue to get sick and sometimes die mysteriously. Their hearts would stop or they would start beating out of rhythm. 
Babies would start oozing blood. Their blood was unable to clot. Time after time, when a child inexplicably died, it seemed that Janine was the person on duty. Between May and December of 1981, the hospital found 10 children that died suddenly and inexplicably. However, the hospital was so desperate to avoid bad press that they didn't fire Janine, nor did they call the police on her. As a way to sweep these incidents under the rug, the hospital changed its name and let all of its vocational nurses go under the guise of upgrading the unit with better registered nurses. Janine was offered a job elsewhere in the hospital, and she was let go with exceptional recommendation letters, and her reputation as a nurse was still spotless. Janine left the desk. Janine left, and the desk suddenly stopped. After she left, the hospital launched an investigation and came to the conclusion that 10 children had died in her care. The official report stated that those deaths could have been accidental, but negligence could not be ruled out. Having such great recommendations, Janine was able to find similar work um, with a pediatrician. Children suddenly became sick when they were just getting routine injections. The pattern of sickly children was following Janine. Over a period of 31 days, seven of Janine's patients had eight separate medical emergencies. One 15-month-old child died while under Janine's care. The only child death that Janine could be directly linked to was the death of a 15-month-old. The child went in for routine immunizations, but was instead injected thrice with muscle relaxer that caused his heart to stop. This death warranted a full-blown criminal investigation complete with testimonies regarding the mysterious death of multiple children under Janine's care. Not long after that, she was charged again, this time with attempted murder. Janine injected a four-week-old with a lethal, a lethal dose of blood thinner, a drug that would have caused massive bleeding. Luckily, the child survived and Joan was, was charged with attempted murder and got 60 years tacked onto her existing 99-year sentence. No one aside from Janine was charged with a crime, but Bexar County Hospital and the pediatrician's office in Kerrville, where she worked after she was let go from the hospital, were investigated. And Dr. Holland, who was a doctor at the pediatrician's office, had several private lawsuits brought against her, questioning her medical judgment. There wasn't any proof at the time for certain that the children were murdered, but there was enough evidence to piece together a possible timeline of what happened in the events that led up to their deaths. It's theorized that in Kerrville, Janine created medical emergencies to make it look like she and Dr. Holland were heroes once the children were saved. Others were convinced that Janine lived in a town with a high population of elderly individuals. She wanted to create these emergencies so a pediatric intensive care unit could be created and that she and her friends could run it. The prospect of a murderous lesbian clique was even considered. Eventually, people began to wonder about Janine's lust for excitement. A quote from Janine herself says, I haven't killed a damn soul. I always cry when babies die. You can almost explain away an adult death. When you look at an adult die, at least you can say they had a full life. When a baby dies, they've been cheated. They've been cheated out of a hell of a lot. When Janine spoke of her time in the children's ICU, she said she felt nothing but fear. Once she held the first baby she cared for, a preemie with a gut infection, she felt that she was in the right place. 
the nurse who had done Janine's orientation disagreed. She stated that Janine had barely cared for the infant. An infant with this intestinal disease, necrotizing enterocolitis, would often die. The infant went into surgery and didn't survive. Janine apparently went berserk and brought a stool into the baby's room, just sitting and looking at the body. During this time, Janine worked in the pediatric ICU. There were eight beds and separate glass cubicles so that nurses could keep their eyes on their patients. Many of the children who ended up in the pediatric ICU were infants, even though they accepted children up to 16 years of age. This particular ICU was in a teaching hospital for the University of Texas at San Antonio. Um, It was for their medical school. Therefore, none of the people rotating shifts were full-time. It was always someone different on the floor. The nurses there were a very strong presence for this reason. A typical pediatric nurse spends time on one or two patients who need constant attention and can basically do nothing for themselves. Many patients were on the brink of disaster and nurses who choose to work there are suited for the high-pressure, fast-paced environment that being in the ICU demands. Janine begins to think of herself as an actual pediatric nurse rather than an LVN. Bexar County Hospital had a shortage of nurses, as most hospitals do. Janine often volunteered to work overtime. It's been said that some registered nurses look down on licensed vocational nurses, but everyone seemed to be pretty impressed with Janine's knowledge and enthusiasm. She understood anatomy or physiology on a higher level than most LVNs. Doctors who worked with her said that if she didn't understand something, she would pull out their medical books and try to figure it out. However, the thing that seemed to be the most impressive about Janine was how skillfully she could put intravenous lines into veins. Janine seemed to be able to find the vein no matter what. Word of this spread throughout the hospital and nurses would often ask her to start their IVs for them. One person even said that she could probably start an IV in a fly if she wanted to. A former physician that knew Janine said that she was probably the most competent nurse there, despite the fact that she was just an LVN. Janine's personality gained her many enemies, though. She was loud, vulgar, she cursed and made dirty jokes. Some of the other personnel didn't appreciate that. She shared details of her sex life. She had strong opinions about a lot of things, doctors and nurses included, that she had no issue sharing with the others. Janine also made enemies by finding things wrong with every patient she had. She would call doctors over to look at something multiple times. If the doctor disagreed with her opinions, she would call in another one and continue to go higher up until someone finally listened to her. When she was ignored, she would begin to prepare for the worst, most often death. When something goes wrong in a hospital, it's called a code. Where Janine worked, a code begins when a nurse notices that something isn't right. For instance, a child has stopped breathing. She shouts out to the nurse's station, and whoever is the closest presses a white button that sends out an alarm, sending doctors flooding to their floor. When a nurse thinks that the emergency is severe enough, she calls a code blue. Help comes from every direction, 
ICU nurses show up with a crash cart loaded with emergency supplies. When a child died in Bexar County Hospital, the nurses there were responsible for bringing the child's body down to the morgue, which is something that a lot of them did not like. After the parents saw the child or held them for one last time, the nurses cleaned the body, took the catheters and tubes out, and covered the body, either with a plastic shroud or a blanket. If it was a bigger child, the body would be put on a metal stretcher and wheeled down to the morgue. If it was an infant, the nurse carried the body in her arms. Then they had to call security to come and let them into the morgue. The security guards also cleared the hall to make sure that no one saw the child being taken off to the morgue because that would be somewhat of a spectacle. This was one of the harder parts of the nursing job at Bexar, and some nurses had such a tough time that they often thought of finding a less complicated job. Janine didn't really seem to mind, though. She often requested the sickest children. But when a child died, Janine usually broke down and cried. She would tell the other nurses to hold off on calling the parents. She would sit in the room and rock the child. The first death that struck investigators as suspicious was the death of Christopher James Hogega. He had been in the hospital for six months. He was extremely sick, suffering from a congenital heart defect, pneumonia, and diarrhea. He eventually developed hepatitis and the infection spread. He died of cardiac arrest. Janine broke down into tears, saying that Chris had been her boy. She cared for him for months and had become close with his parents. Later on, when Janine got into trouble and had to leave, the Hogueta suggested that she move into their hometown, which she did. Throughout 1981, nine more strange deaths occurred. Investigators didn't find written evidence of something strange until months later. Doctors and nurses at the hospital recounted many other codes that were non-fatal. It started becoming more and more frequent until it was happening every day or two. Eventually, the nurses began to connect these events to Janine, despite her being seemingly devastated every time a child died. As I said earlier, Susanna Maldonada worked the shift immediately following Janine's, and it didn't take long for the two women to start butting heads. Susanna thought that Janine was an aggressive Elvian that wanted people to think that she knew more than she really did. As more emergencies began to happen, she started to connect them to Janine, and after some time, she approached head nurse Pat Belko about the suspicions. On October 10, 1981, Jose Antonio Flores was brought in due to fever, vomiting, diarrhea, and dehydration. After his third day in the pediatric ICU, he began to have seizures. A brain scan was done. While he was having the scan done, the boy went into cardiac arrest. He was revived and brought into the pediatric ICU where doctors realized that he was hemorrhaging. He went into cardiac arrest again, and while doctors tried for nearly an hour to revive him, they didn't. The cause of the bleeding was unknown. Charts from his scans were looked at. Janine was present during the time of the brain scan. 
Three weeks before Janine was indicted, she was sitting and being interviewed with her 19-year-old husband. She was 33 at the time. They lived together along with a nurse that Janine had met at Bexar, Debbie Sultanfuss, who was 35 at the time. Debbie was from a small, slow-moving farm town. She ended up working in the pediatric ICU with Janine. Since then, the two had become inseparable. When Janine took the job at the pediatrician's office in Kerrville, Debbie followed suit and got a job at a local hospital. When the trouble started for Janine, Debbie moved her mobile home to San Angelo and she and Janine settled in. Debbie believed that she and Janine shared a sisterly love despite having to combat claims that she was a lesbian. She went as far as to tell reporters to ask her new spouse if she was a lesbian. The video of Janine being taken to jail that viewers saw on the news was misleading, to say the least. She looked broken and defeated when she was actually far from that. She was calculated, articulate, scrappy, and intelligent. She had an answer for everything. She continued to deny that any of the San Antonio deaths were her fault, but instead were at the fault of lousy doctors. Janine had the option of freedom in 2018 due to a Texas law called the Mandatory Release Law, which allowed inmates to put good behavior towards time served. The law was originally intended to help with overpopulation in prisons and including violent criminals. Prosecutors in Texas did not want to see her walk free because the likelihood that she killed many more than the two children she was charged for was extremely high. Records at the Bexar County Hospital where she worked were destroyed, so there isn't an exact number, but it's suspected that she killed more than 60 children during her time as a nurse, possibly making Janine one of the worst serial killers in American history. There is a point where she was up for parole of some sort or at some sort of hearing, and a family member of one of the victims came to speak. And it turns out that Janine had asked for a Bible. And the family member of one of the victims told her something along the lines of, how dare you ask for a Bible when you've done such horrible things? And Janine was re- denied the request for a Bible. Now, Janine is only one in a sea of healthcare professionals who have used their power and resources to harm rather than to help the people in their care. Thank you for tuning in to the first part of Angels of Mercy. The second half of this episode will be dropping next Sunday. As you can see, I have moved the release dates for the podcast just so I can have the entire weekend to work on it because the weekdays do get pretty busy, but I do appreciate you listening. If this is your first time listening, thank you very much. I'm taking questions, comments, concerns at with a side of crime at yahoo.com. Feel free to message me on Facebook at with a side of crime or on Instagram at with a side of crime. Um, same handle for both. So once again, thank you very much for listening and I will catch you next week.